We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finney. We've got a great show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we're going to be interviewing Michal Shapiro, who is a musicology uh, specializing in Nigun, and we're going to talk about Nigun, which is uh, Hasidic melodies, which we opened up with one that was Nimul uh, singing Viata Marta. The second half of the show will be featuring a monologue about the Parsha of Vayishlach, which will be read in the synagogue in this coming week. That's in Genesis 32 and following, continuing the Bible story with Jacob and Esau. We've got a wonderful story at the end. Stay all the way through. Really good story at the end. Very poignant, and lots of Jewish music scattered throughout the show. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. Unfortunately, our news, we're starting off with a very disturbing story. Detroit native Danny Fenster was sentenced to 11 years in prison for reporting against the military junta that led a coup in Myanmar last February. Fenster was arrested in May while trying to leave the country. More than 100 journalists have been arrested since the coup. A two-year operation headed by Israel Shin Beit, that's like the FBI, ended with the arrest of 65 Arab gun smugglers and an indictment of 72 gun shop owners. Thousands of smuggled weapons were confiscated along with millions of shekels in cash. Most of the guns were smuggled from Jordan or stolen from IDF bases. Palestinians shot at IDF forces near Ramallah. None of the soldiers were injured. The terrorists escaped. Five people, this is an interesting story, five people were arrested in Tanzania, Senegal, and Ghana for planning terrorist attacks against Israeli targets in Africa. The five were all members of the Al-Quds Iranian Brigade. Israel cabinet approved plans granting work permits for Palestinian Israelis into Palestine. Let's try this one again. Israel's cabinet approved plans granting work permits to Palestinians to work in Israel's high tech sector. The government has previously only approved permits for work in construction, agriculture, industry, and services. A forest fire broke out near Petah Tikva. Firefighters have been fighting the blaze since last Friday. And uh, finally, police in Britain arrested two men for chanting offensive soccer-themed limericks at an Orthodox Jewish passenger on a flight between London and Belgium. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248 
624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Hey, Shulfman here. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Let's do a little music. This is brand new, like hours brand new, hours old. This is Mordechai Shapiro. The song is Abba, which means dad, referring to God. Assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. 
That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Michael Klein, who is an ethnomusicologist, and we're going to be talking about nigun, which is one of those. It's become a key key keyword, you know, buzzword. People are thinking, "How are you today, Michael?" Good. How are you doing? Good. Thank God. Okay. So, how does one become an ethnomusicologist? How does one become an ethnomusicologist? Yeah, maybe I want to be one. <laughs> uh, well, <clears throat> basically, I uh, I went to UCLA. Well, let's backtrack. So I went to Ithaca College uh, for music composition. Um, and then I'd say around my senior year, I really got interested in uh, Chabad Hasidic music, uh, Nagunim. And uh, what ended up happening is I just started researching and getting interested. And, and I've always sort of had an interest in academic sort of stuff and researching and questioning and probing. And um, so then that was sort of the beginning of my interest in the Gunim. And then a few years later, you know, during that time I went to Yeshiva and whatnot and, you know, met my wife, got married. And then um, I got into UCLA for music composition, and I saw that UCLA has a really big history of ethnomusicology. You know, they're actually one of the first in the uh, in the nation. Uh, they're one of the biggest, first, I'm sure one of the biggest programs, one of the earliest programs. Like, when you look at the history of ethnomusicology in America, uh, UCLA is kind of, like, up there with them. Uh, and so then I took some courses, and I got really interested, and I learned um, all about it, and... I took what I learned and I applied it towards the research that I did on Chabad music. Oh, interesting, fascinating. So now when I'm thinking ethno music, ethnic music, so I'm thinking Latino, African, maybe gypsy music, you know, the backwaters of Europe. Jewish music doesn't seem to to just stand out as being something that one would actually study. So, what what is it like at, at UCLA in studying about Jewish ethnic music, Michal? Sure. Well, um, you know, so ethnomusicology, all really ethno music. You know, musicology is the study of music in um, in like culture and in history. So, the funny thing is, <laughs> sorry. In ethnomusicology, there's actually been kind of a conversation about, okay, so is it non-Western music? Is it, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, historically, um, Jews and Judaism has been really kind of non-Western, even though we were living in the Western world, because we were always sort of like the other in whatever post-Western culture we were in. You know what I mean? Um, And... Oftentimes, like, you know, way in, like, the late 19th century, early 20th century, especially with Yiddish film, there's this almost, like, exoticization or orientalism, I guess you would say, of, um, of Jewish culture. You know, I'm thinking about old black and white films like The Dybbuk or The Golem, um, films where you had a lot of magic and Kabbalah and, you know, this kind of like, oh, what is it? We don't really know. And, you know, Shalom Aleichem the author really kind of contributed to that of like Yiddish 
filmed in Yiddish theater, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, he's, that's his, like, most famous uh, thing that he's known for. Um, but basically, um, I would say that, you know, for us as Jews, we don't really see Jewish music as being, you know, quote-unquote ethnic, that's no, you know, music. But um, for the wider audience, I mean, in America, you know, um, not many people know about Nagunim, or what they know is this, like, huge caricature of what Hasidism is and Hasidic music is. Um, but in terms of my personal experience studying Jewish music at UCLA, it's actually very good because when I started there, um, it was the same time that uh, a professor named Mark Kligman, who was one of the foremost Jewish research music researchers in the country, um, he had just um, taken on the newly formed chair, the Mickey Katz Chair in Jewish Music, which was the first of its kind at UCLA. It was a, it's a fu fully funded uh, chair um, position <clears throat> to just spearhead Jewish music, uh, research Jewish music um, events, things like that. And since he's been there, you know, now they have like the Lowell Milken Fund for American Jewish Music. So UCLA really, since I've been there and even afterwards, is really poised to be a beacon and a hub of Jewish music in academia, at least in terms of research and, um, um, you know, just having records of Jewish music and whatnot. That's that's fascinating. The Mickey Katz chair of, of Jewish music, I'm immediately thinking of how much is that pickle in the window and the, the gestray of the Vilda Kachka. That's, that's so great. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and it's funny because, you know, so with the Mickey Katz chair, because it was specifically the Mickey Katz chair, you know, what's interesting, so uh, Mickey Katz's son, Joel Gray, you know, the famous, mm -hmm. you know, Mickey Katz is famous, the son of Joel Gray is also famous for shows like Cabaret and whatnot, so Joel Gray had a vested interest in the program, I never met him, but I know that, for instance, uh, I was in the Klezmer Music Ensemble, I headed the Klezmer Music Ensemble for a few years, and he saw performances that we did um, on recorded video, and he thought that they were great, so that was pretty cool, but yeah, I mean, we did a few Mickey Katz songs um, in tribute to Mickey Katz because it was the Mickey Katz chair. You know what okay. I mean? <laughs> just, just as an aside, do you have a favorite Mickey Katz song? I play Mickey Katz on the station, on the show all the time, but I do have a favorite, um, favorite Mickey Katz show. I mean, I think the classic, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't know that much of his music, but of course the classic, you know, Dove is, Dove and Crockett. Uh -huh. I mean, that That's cool. Funny. Mine actually, his favorite is Where Are My Pants? Which is a great song. It's a, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a parody of. Um, I don't even remember. The, it's a Disney song. Da da I don't remember what the what the original was, but it's very. very I don't funny. remember either. So, but anyway, so um, <laughs> the end. The, the the punchline is I lost my pants in Las Vegas. So that was the uh, the, the pun. At, <laughs> the pun at, the pun at the end of the thing. That's great. Our guest today is uh, Michael Klein. We're talking about Jewish ethnomusicology. Okay, so the Jewish Hour came online about 26 years ago, and uh, I, at that time, had one CD. And so I reached out and went, on, went online and went all over the place. Like, where am I going to get music for? I want to play music. And you can't just, the first show, I actually played three songs from one CD because I only had one CD. The internet, YouTube's not around yet. And I reached out to Velvel Pasternak. Do you, I don't know if you know the name. Uh, and of course I know Velvel Pasternak was, yeah. That's it. Of course. Velvel Pasternak was the, like, the 
Jewish musicologist. He knew more about Jewish music than probably anybody alive in the 20th century. 20th century. Absolutely. He was... Absolutely. Uh, he that's, was not, that's not contested. Yeah, he was probably responsible for popularizing and making Jewish music what it is today. It's available Pasternak. He actually, I reached out to him. I uh, called him on the phone. He said, yeah, okay. I'm trying to remember the name of the label that he was working with at that time in Baltimore. And uh, I called him up and I said, I need some CDs and could you help me out? He said, yeah, okay, I'll send you some some stuff I'd like you to promote. He sent me a box, without exaggeration, of over 100 CDs of various Jewish Jewish uh, titles of different genre of all, all over the place. So I had him on my show and I asked him the question, what's Jewish music? And his response was, whatever Jewish Jews are making at the time. Now, let me let me qualify that answer and see what I said. We played a song. I don't know if you heard the song I just played. I just played a song that just, just came out. It's by It was by Mordecai Shapiro called Abba. And the, the the music very sounds like he borrowed it from Stevie Wonder, like from Very Superstitious. Huh. And when we get done, I'll be playing music by Gioria Feedman, and we'll be playing Sammy's Freilich, which is probably about 100 years old. Then there's another song at the end while I'm playing Ellie Beer doing a song called Elokai Ekra, which sounds like it could have been played at the uh, at a um, the pro was it not not Providence what's the other city in, in Rhode Island the the folk festival there it's like folk music so Jewish music seems to take on um, the the flavor of whatever is being played by the locals and absolutely. And therefore, we have all these various different genre, like Moroccan music, you know, Joe Amar and all these people, type of people. But what's different about a niggin? A niggin's not a Jewish song. What's a niggin? So it's interesting to say a niggin is not a Jewish song because I think that I actually, you know, if somebody were to just kind of like drop a pin in this conversation and hear that phrase, a niggin is not a Jewish song. They wouldn't get what you're saying. You know what I mean? Go but ahead. given all of the titles you just mentioned, Mordecai Shapiro and all these others, um, I totally agree with you that a niggin is not a Jewish song. You know, a Jewish song, I would say, uh, nowadays is like, you know, the Jewish pop music. But a niggin is completely different because, you know, music like Avraham Fried and Mordecai Ben David, who I love, you know, I really love, you know, I, I love the classics, and there's also some new people that I really love. Like, I don't know if you ever played Miss in Black. I mean, sure. that's, that's rap. Sick, but I love Miss We played him last week, as a matter We played him last week, as a matter of fact, yes. He came out with I a new song. I love Miss in Black. I think Miss in Black music is some of the best Jewish music today, quite honestly. Um, just in terms of the quality of it and the lyrical content. But what separates a niggin, I feel, is it's a certain cultural context. You know, I said this... Um, they recently put out a um, Chabad.org article um, where I was interviewed, and they, they, something they quoted from me that I thought was really, you know, I'm really happy they did, was that <coughs> Nagunim was by Hasidim and by, and by Rebbeim for Hasidim. So it was like by Hasidim for Hasidim, but like add on the Rebbeim, like by Hasidim and Rebbe's for Hasidim. So it was, you know, are Hasidic, in their, you know, in their origin. Um, in their real origin, actually, the earliest origins was taken, you know, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the, the, the Hasidic movement. Um, he was deeply inspired by the songs of the 
surrounding, you know, folk shepherds, you know, the, the, the flute songs and the vocal folk songs of the shepherds, the non-Jewish shepherds, whether it was in Ukrainian shepherds or Wallachian shepherds. And, you know, what's interesting is you might say, you have something, you have someone like the Baal Shem Tov, who is a tremendous tzaddik. Um, what's he doing? Cucking in this non, you know, this music that's of non-Jewish origin. Um, and now he's taking it and he's making it some of the most Jewish music you can imagine. And the answer is, is this idea that actually um, was taken from a researcher named Ellen Koskoff. She was actually, I recently did a, um, like a, a lecture, kind of co-lecture with her. And she was the first, she was the first ethnomusicologist to write a major work, a major ethnography on the music of Lubavitcher uh, Hasidim. And it's called Music of Lubavitcher Life. And she talks about this idea called musical tikkun. You know, we know tikkun, the idea, you know, tikkun olam, or the idea of tikkun, that there's, and all, you know, the physical world is this, like, darkness, and in the darkness of the physical world, there are these sparks of kedusha, these sparks of holiness, and it's our job through doing mitzvahs and learning Torah and, you know, engaging in the physical world uh, to pure, you know, to take those sparks and purify them and elevate the sparks. You know, so, and that's why Judaism is a very physical religion as opposed to, some other religious philosophies where you might, you know, retreat into the mountains and, you know, look at your belly button for six years and breathe, you know, mountain air and do, I don't know, you know, or shun the physicality. We embrace the physicality, um, not on a purely physical basis, but as to what it could do for us. And now, I know that you might be wondering, what does this have to do with Nagunim and music? But it's very important because um, Nagunim were a product of musical tikkun, of taking these... Um, songs of shepherds, and again, let me give a big, big, big parenthesis to this that's very important, is that it was always understood that not every, you know, Yankel, Beryl, and Schmerl could do this. Not every person could take a niggin, uh, I mean, could take a folk song and turn it into a niggin. Only a tzaddik, only somebody who had um, Ruach Kodesh who could perceive in that song that there was a spark they say that that spark, actually, that was in the folk songs were sparks that were a Gilgul of the songs from the Beis HaMikdash. That's the thing I heard. I don't remember where I heard this it. Is, I can't quote it, but it's okay, a very interesting idea. That, it is an idea. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting idea to think that people would have a connection with uh, melodies that would have been, I guess you would call them at that time liturgical because there wasn't any liturgy. It was just music in the temple, but going back more than 2,000 years. Would you, would you any clue how well, that would work? Well, well so here's, so, yeah, so here's how I understand it, because, you know, I am, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say that in the times of the Beis HaMikdash they were doing, you know, you know, I don't think that they were doing that, like, you know. Like Although you never or, know. You never know, but. Um, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry to be glad. I mean, it sounds like a really good, like, a Mel Brooks skit or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um but, um, no, the way I understand it is everything has a body and a soul, you know? And so it may not necessarily be the body of the song, which is the music of the song, but there is a soul of the song that we apprehend with the musical notes and the rhythms and the instruments and whatnot. And yet that's not what the soul is. Meaning you can't say, oh, the soul is in that, the eighth note, that's the soul. Or, you know, that, that's the soul. You, you don't say that, but the soul is what's giving it life. In the sense, like, you know, when you look at yourself, you look at your hand. Oh, my, my hand, that's my soul. No, but your, your hand is able to move and you're able to exist because your soul is animating your body, right? So in the same way that 
it might not be that that folk song is maybe it had a vague, vague, vague shadow of a resemblance to the music in the bass of Mikdash, but even if it didn't, that doesn't bother me because the way I understand it is that the soul of that folk song, the feeling and the highest in that song is the same soul or a spark, a chip off the old block from the same soul of the songs that were performed in the bass of Mikdash. That's the way I understand it. Yeah, that's very interesting. Let me just interrupt. I'm going to take in, our guest today again is uh, Michal Klein. Is it Rabbi Michal Klein, Dr. Michal Klein? What are you giving uh, you a title? Not rabbi yet. Not rabbi yet. I'm, I'm working on it. Okay, good. Um, doctor. Arab. Yeah, I mean, I have my, I have my PhD, but I'm not, a, I'm not a rabbi yet. Hopefully okay. soon. An Arab, an Arab Rav. Okay, fine. Good. But, um, <laughs> Arab Rav. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna take an I'm gonna take an example. Okay, we opened up with the song Nyet Nyet Yekova, which was done in a modern way. It has modern orchestration, and it was sung by a French uh, singer who did make, worked on the arrangement. The song Nyet Nyet Yekovo was da 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 was um, the words mean uh, God is one, His name is one. Besides Him, there is none. As you translate it into English and make it rhymes. To my understanding, that was a Russian bar song. Yep. And and to take it even further than that, if you want to take it back further than that, about 15 years ago or so, there was a person on YouTube who did something called the Pachelbel rant, and he showed that Pachelbel's inflation, da 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 that chord progression appears throughout. The uh, popular music going all he gives he plays examples of uh, Ver the Beatles and Aerosmith and uh, other people like this. So my daughter, who was learning piano at the time, using learning music theory, so she started playing around with that chord progression and she put it into D minor, and what she got was da 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 bum 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 bum. Okay, so now let's talk about the turning all of that. Into a nigun. How would how does such a thing like that happen, Michal? Meaning, how is how, how do we get uh, from Pachelbel to a Russian drinking song to besides God there is none? Okay, well, you know the connection between um, Pachelbel's canon and the Russian drinking song. Um, I honestly I can't say that. I mean, I'm sure that one could do a thorough study on it and say, yes, that is, you know, that is what it is, you know, that it is from Pachelbel's canon. But, you know, honestly, we, we don't know. I know it sounds very similar. It could be maybe some guy somewhere happened to have heard Pachelbel's canon. And he's like, no, Igor, I heard this song and it's great. Let's sing it at the Russian bar. And then some Lubavitcher was like, oh, wow, that's great. Let's use the word name Yenikovo. Could be, I don't know. But basically, in terms of how the Russian drinking song was taken and turned into a niggin. Again, it goes back to this idea of musical tikkun, because this idea is, you know, um, I don't know if it's from the Zohar or from the, I can, honestly, I, don't, I, I know these like sayings, but I can't exactly quote where they're from, but you probably said before that the higher something is, the lower it falls, mm-hmm. you know, like the highest brick on the wall will fall the farthest away from the wall. And, you know, I mean, that's a very profound statement. You could use that for a lot of things, like especially, you know, people that are seemingly having difficulties and troubles in their Yiddishkeit, um, that those people are actually the loftiest souls of our generation because, you know, otherwise, why would they be falling away so far? Or like, for instance, Acher, you know, Alicia Benabuya, like he was this amazing 
Tamar Chacham, and yet we hear, like, when he became not religious, he did so, you know, with such a, with such a zest and with such a fire that um, it was really, really crazy. So, you know, the fact that you take a Russian drinking song, the normal sensibilities would say, oh, my gosh, you have this thing that's being used for the crudest thing, Russian drinking songs or, you know, military marches and what's what such, you know, such a random assortment of songs, and yet they're being used to express the most intimate and beautiful and holy aspects of Hasidic life, right? Mm-hmm. But again, it's this idea that the spark is there, and the tzaddik, or, you know, a Hasid who perceives it, and then the Hasid brings it to the tzaddik, and the tzaddik okays it and says, yes, you know, that is, that's appropriate. Again, it also have the Sadiq stamp of approval. Um, I mean, I can almost guarantee you that all of the newer Nagunim that were brought during the Rebbe's time, you know, Rebbe Nachman Schneerson during his time, um, were, none of them became part of the canon without the Rebbe's stamp of approval. And even some of these Nagunim today, like I happen to know somebody who is a wonderful Hasid and he's a great Balmanagan and he wrote a new Nigan a few years ago in honor of the Rebbe's birthday. You know, in Chabad, we always take like a, a Pusik from the Rebbe's capital and we put a melody, we put a, either we put an existing Nigan to it or we write a new Nigan. But, you know, what's interesting is that none of these Nagunim, maybe it's because they're new and there hasn't been enough time and maybe 50 years from now they'll be singing it, but none of them have really stuck as being part of the canon as the Nagunim of old times do, because the Rebbe is not physically here to put his stamp of approval on it. You know what I mean? Um, so the fact that this Russian drinking song that I think it was during the middle of his time that it was taken on, um, that doesn't surprise me. You know, what's interesting is, so the, um, the Rebbe would only, um, so there, there's two there's two big um, two songs of non-Jewish origin, La Marseille, which was the French national anthem that the Rebbe brought in, you know, about and then Napoleon's march that the author Rebbe, Rebbe Schneider Zalman, he brought in. What was interesting is uh, La Marseille, the Rebbe would use it for the um, for the the tefillah and davening of. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is I once heard that he would really only encourage it during um, the davening of Yom Merayim, of like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Which is interesting because, you know, they're the holiest days of the year, and we're using that melody, Dafka, for that tefillah during that time of the year. And I think the reason why is because since it came not from the mind of a chassid, not from the mind of a rabbi, but it came from an outside source. There was a spark there, and since the rabbi, he took it, and he, I guess, converted it, if you want to say that, or he did a musical tikkun, then that could be, um, that's now part of the canon, and it's used on one of the holiest days of the year. So to me, it, again, it's not really a contradiction in terms of how could it be, a Russian drinking song, all these things. It makes sense to me, because this idea of musical tikkun, this idea of the spark, that's in there that, you know, the Sadiq brings out. And, um, yeah, 
Okay, cool. We are unfortunate. I have a zillion more questions. We're going to have to reserve a time to get you back on again because, but I am, we are out of time for this segment. We want to thank our guest again was Michael Klein, an ethnomusicologist specializing in Nigund, the Jewish soulful melodies of the Lubavitcher Hasidim. And uh, do you have explanations for all 200 and something? Uh, Nigunim, have you able to track down the origins? And... Uh, definitely not. Yeah, no, I don't have. A, I would, I'm, I'm waiting for that because there's a lot of Nigunim. Just you know, some of them they are in, they're in the book called Safer Nigunim, the book about these melodies. Yeah. And the previous Rebbe did. And you wouldn't be able to tackle it in one radio session. <laughs> yeah, no, that's we're talking. You could do a whole podcast on that one. So, in a series of podcasts, maybe you'll start a podcast. Everybody's doing podcasts. Hello. Okay. I want to thank you so much, Michal, and uh, wish you uh, all the best. I mean, thank you so much. Have a great job. You too. Take care. We're going to take a, a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Some things are better the way they used to be, like the crisp feel of a cool autumn day, the serenity of a baby sleeping, or the feeling of coming home after a long trip. Franklin Cider Mills makes cider the way cider is supposed to be. Its old-fashioned, clear, crisp taste reminds you of a cool autumn day. Located in the heart of historic Franklin Village at 14 Mile and Franklin Road, Franklin Cider Mill has been making cider the same way for over a century. Always fresh, with no additives or preservatives. You just can't buy Franklin Cider in any supermarket. Franklin Cider Mill is open from Labor Day weekend to after Thanksgiving from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Come visit Franklin Cider Mill. It's kind of like coming home. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Let's do some Jewish music. This is Gioria Friedman and Moshe Berlin. This is Sammy's Freilach, which means Sammy's Happy Tune.
And that was Juria Feldman, Sammy's Freilich. Up next, as we promised in the interview, this coming up is Ellie Beer, who's been doing stuff for, oh, we played Ellie Beer stuff uh, 25 years ago. And he's come out now. This is a very beautiful piece. It's called Elokai Ekra, I Call Out to God. Let's listen. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. 
auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248 624 9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We are be reading in the synagogue this week. Oh, before I talk about the portion of the week, I have to mention, give a plug for an absolute gem in Detroit. It's not a secret. Everybody knows about it, but it's an absolute wonderful thing, and that is the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. The Detroit Symphony Orchestra is back up. It's running its full swing, and it's uh, it's very it's amazing. The programs that they've had, the concerts that they've been playing this year, year you want to go on their their orchestra their uh, website dso.org, check out what they have. They have some really interesting programs coming up, and uh, the different things. If you don't like classical music, they have the jazz season. They have the pops. They have all different things coming. They have different performers that come and do different types of things, a different genre. Um, I think this year they did, they had, I think they had already the Bugs Bunny Orchestra where they play cartoons and then the orchestra plays behind them. But they have like Home Alone, the movie with the orchestra playing the score, the score underneath it, that kind of stuff. So check them out. Um, you caveat, you have to show that you are vaccinated. You have to bring your vaccination card and you have to wear a mask the whole time. I didn't notice. I got there when I went to the last conference. I got there a little late. I didn't notice if the bar was open or if they were serving food or any type of thing like that. It would seem to me that they would not if they keep asking people to stay masked. But uh, and we left right afterwards out the back door. We didn't go through the lobby. So um, it's a great place. It's a wonderful venue. The acoustics are, are beyond their A++++. And it's a world-class orchestra, and I suggest you go check them out. That was my plug. Okay, this week is a portion of Vayishlach. It is found in chapter 32 of Genesis. And the story opens up that Yaakov is on his way to meet, to go back home. And he hears that his brother Esav is still mad at him. It's been 37 years 22 and 14, yes, 36 years. It's been 36 years. And his brother is still mad at him for stealing the blessing. In fact, the brother is coming with 400 men to wipe out Jacob. The interesting thing. At the very, very beginning of the portion, Jacob sends messengers. And there's a discussion of the messengers. We're not going to go into that right now. And he says... Im Lavangarti, I have been a sojourner with at Lavan's house. I've been wandering around with Lavan for the last three decades. Okay, Rashi, the classic biblical commentary, the Pashtun, the simple interpretation, somehow for some reason here decides he's going to use an allegory rather than the simple interpretation, and says that the word Garti is 613, numerical value 613. Every Hebrew letter has a numerical equivalent. Aleph is one, base is two. It should be like A, B, C. If you did one, two, three, correspondent like that, when you get to the 10th letter, so that becomes a 10. The 11th letter becomes 20. The 13th letter is until you get to the end, you get uh, 100, 200, uh, 100, 300, 400 is the way it goes. So the word Garti is 613, corresponding to the 613 commandments. And what Rashi says there is, I, Yaakov, I have done my part in rectifying the world, 
in making the world a better place, purifying it, as uh, as Michael Klein talked about, elevating the sparks, re- re- returning the godliness which is stuck in the physical world. I've done my part, and I've assumed that in the last 36 years, you, Asav, have also done it, your part as well. And therefore, we, when we meet, we'll be able to greet the Messiah because the world will be perfect. The messengers came back and said, Asav Achicha, he's Asav, your brother. Okay, he's still your brother, yeah, but he's still Asaph. He didn't do anything. And Mashiach hasn't come yet. Messiah is not here. What do we see from this? This is a, a, uh, a huge lesson that must be learned. That, okay, we can say that the Jewish people are the chosen people. And we were given 613 commandments and given the brunt of the work that needs to be done for preparing the world because we have so many more mitzvahs, so many more commandments than the rest of the world that the rest of the world only has seven. But can't poo-poo say only seven? No, because there's seven and a half billion people out there that have to do the seven commandments. And when we can get those seven and a half billion people to do that, well, for sure, absolutely 100% Mashiach is going to come. What's entailed is, well, belief in one God. So now we have a big deal in China, a big deal in India, a big deal in Japan, big deal in that whole that whole region over there where they don't believe in one God. The Chinese don't believe in a God, and the Indians believe in a zillion gods. As long as not be- worshiping idols, well, that takes care of India and China, Japan, etc., and uh, not committing adultery, murder, theft, which is pretty universal, not being cruel to animals, we'd hope that be true, and establishing proper legislative courts, legislative bodies, courts, police forces to maintain order and make sure that people are doing all the other six commandments that they're supposed to be doing. This is called, in Hebrew, avodas habirurim, rectifying the world. And everybody, every man, woman, and child alive today throughout the length and breadth, the scope of the globe, has a portion of the world which is theirs. They're there by divine providence, and they're there to make the world a better place. Jacob has been trying to encourage Esau for 4,000 years. This is what the Jews have been trying to do. Okay, we, we go to a place and we try to be Jews move from Israel to Rome to Babylon to Egypt to, to Poland to Germany to Europe to the, to, to the Western Hemisphere to North and South America to Australia. And what is our focus supposed to be? Our focus is really supposed to be in why are Jews have to be in all these places to make that part of the world better. But it's very much so to encourage that the rest of the population in those countries also stick to their deal, to get the ace of, to do their part. So we have a message now for two people. If you're not, if you're not Jewish and listening to this podcast... So you have to go do good things. Make sure that you're doing those seven commandments of believing in God, not believing in idols, not committing adultery, murder, or theft, not being cruel to animals, and, and uh, adhering to the laws of the land. But then, for Jew and non-Jew alike, every person has to encourage somebody else. And this is the campaign that we're on this year. If you're listening to this podcast, this is the the... the the resolution I want you to take on, I've taken it on. I want you to talk to 10 people and encourage them 
to do one good deed that they wouldn't have done till now. If they're Jewish, get them to do a mitzvah. If they're not Jewish, get them to do something in, a, in a, whatever is defined as a good deed. And also encourage them to encourage 10 people to go do a good deed. And then what's happening is we now have this, we call it a pyramid scheme. Yeah, it started with one person, and the one became 10, and the 10 became 100, and the 100 became 1,000, and the 1,000 became 10,000. And before you know it, we've got 7.5 billion people doing what they're supposed to be doing. Speaking about doing what we're supposed to be doing, I got we have to get moving over here. We're getting towards the end. Don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Hi, this is Spex Howard. The Spex Howard School of Media Arts is proud to have been a sponsor of The Jewish Hour and bring quality radio programming to the community. While much of the funding comes from its sponsors, listeners like you help keep the Jewish Hour on the air. Please send your tax-deductible donation to the Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. That's 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. Your help is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Hey, Shultonman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Hey, you want to get in touch with me? Hey, listen, if you're listening to the podcast on my website, it's rabbifinman.com. All you can do is wait to the end of the podcast and then flip down to the donations page, and you'll be, you'll be donating things to me. And you can flip to the homepage, and you'll be, you'll be uh, ready to contact me because it's right there, too. If you're listening on uh, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Radio, uh, Audible, whatever it is that your Odyssey, excuse me, Odyssey it should be iHeartRadio, Odyssey, whatever it is that your medium that you're listening to this on, it it costs, and we need you to uh, help pay up, and uh, we're still trying to get October together, so please let's do our bits. Uh, Salem Communications is very patient, and they've let us go as much as four months, in it, and we don't want to be there, and so. We want to stay on air. And if you're listening now, we're already now 50 minutes into the program and you're listening. must be that you like it as well. So go to the computer, go to RabbiFinman.com, click on the donations page. You want to do $100,000, that's great. But if you only want to do $5, that's good too. Do $5. And if you do it through PayPal, you can make it a monthly donation. And then it's $60 and you don't even feel about it because it all happens automatically. Do that today. Do not delay. And if we get November paid off, so we have October and November, if we get that paid off in, the next, in this like this week or next week, so then I don't do this uh, bit for going getting people to go do the donations, the pledge drive. <laughs> I tell a longer Hasidic story. Speaking of Hasidic story, the Mittler Rebbe, who we opened up with a song from a niggun from the time of the Mittler Rebbe, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, became Rebbe in 1813 and passed away a short time later. I don't remember the exact year. I want to say 1832, if I'm not mistaken. He started something really new. He encouraged people, young men who were just getting married, if you're a newlywed, to come to Lubavitch, which is where he had moved, and to spend time sitting and learning. This was like an unusual thing. I mean, of course, it was for people who could afford to do such a thing. They didn't have to go to work. But he encouraged them to sit and learn Hasidus for three hours a day. Okay? And these people became brilliant, uh, well-versed with Hasidus. With, with and they became 
emissaries. They would travel then throughout the countryside, throughout the Pale of Settlement, as it was called, and disseminate Hasidic teachings. One young man came to the city of Lipley, which is located many miles east of Gross Point Farms. And he came, and he was there for about a week, and every day he explained another Hasidic discourse. There was one person there whose name was Yekusil. And since he moved from Lipley, they called him Yekusil Leipler, which means Yekusil from Lipley. He didn't understand a word. And it bothered him that he had been, he had seen the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he'd, and he, he, but he couldn't understand what this kid was talking about. It was like beyond him. And so he sat with him, and he made this person, he said, I got to get, you know, I'm leaving, I'm going to the next town. No. He says, you're staying here in Lipley, and you're going to teach me what you taught. He spent, this young man spent three weeks exclusively teaching this Rebbe Kassil. Didn't go in, not a word, he had no clue. So he picked himself up, and he went to Lubavitch, and he asked to see the Mittler Rebbe, the second Lubavitch Rebbe, whose uh, the anniversary of his birth and death was celebrated this last Shabbos, and his liberation from Tsarist uh, prison was celebrated this last Sunday. And he, he cried to him, why can't I understand this stuff? So the Mittler Rebbe said to him, listen to this. If you really want it, there is nothing that is going to stand in the way of your will. Because even though your will is not your essence, but the essence of who you are is expressed in your will. And if you really want something, you'll be able to get it. But you got to work. He walked out of the office a new man. And he said, this is what I'm going to do. He sent word to his wife and family. I'm not coming back to Lipley. I'm going to stay here in Lubavitch. And I'm going to learn. And he, and he sat and he learned and he learned and he learned until finally he got to the point. He said, I don't know how many months he spent, years he spent there. The Mittler Rebbe wrote a book for him. The Mittler Rebbe wrote 10 books for individuals. This book that the Mittler Rebbe wrote for Yekusil Leipler is the hardest work in Hasidic philosophy. It's called Imre Bina. I'll tell over understanding. It is definitely a difficult work, but if you want to understand, if you want to accomplish, you will because you want to. That's going to do it for us. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope we had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again here next week. Take care. Yeah.